you have a Bible, you can turn to Proverbs chapter 14. We continue to read through the book of Proverbs and come to Proverbs 14. We'll read verses 16 through 20 for the reading from God's word. Lend your attention. This is God's word. One who is wise is cautious and turns away from evil, but a fool is reckless and careless. A man of quick temper acts foolishly, and a man of evil devices is hated. The simple inherit, inherit folly, but the prudent are crowned with knowledge. The evil bow down before the good, the wicked at the gates of the righteous. The poor is disliked even by his neighbor, but the rich has many friends. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Join me in prayer as we ask God's blessing upon the reading and the preaching of his word. Our Father, we come before you and acknowledge our need to be instructed. And left to ourselves, Father, we inherit futility. Uh, but because of your great grace, O oh Lord, our portion is eternal life in the Lord Jesus Christ. For we have been brought forth by the word which remains, the living and abiding word, your word, O oh Lord. So we ask even now that you would open unto us the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in the Lord Jesus Christ that you would shed fresh light upon our hearts in this world, that we might walk well, as wise, as those who belong to the true king, as those who have been given the eyes to see that this world and all that is within it is fading away. But that the kingdom of the beloved son remains forever, and this is the hope in which we gather and in which we live. Refresh us with these things, O Lord, even as we consider your holy law this evening, that vision of righteousness embodied by Christ, and in which he leads us even now by faith. For we ask in his name, amen. You can turn either to page 973 in your hymnal, and find there the Westminster Shorter Catechism as we conclude our meditation on the Eighth Commandment tonight. I believe the questions are also to be found on the white insert in your bulletin. I'll read the short commandment from Exodus 20, verse 15 to begin. This is God's word. You shall not steal. Thus ends God's word. And we'll take up questions 74 and 75 together. What is required in the Eighth Commandment? The Eighth Commandment requireth the lawful procuring and furthering the wealth and outward estate of ourselves and others. What is forbidden in the Eighth Commandment? The Eighth Commandment forbiddeth 
whatsoever doth or may unjustly hinder our own or our neighbor's wealth or outward estate. With Thanksgiving coming quickly, I feel at liberty to mention Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. You know the story of Ebenezer Scrooge, and it is an illustration of a perennial theme. Scrooge is a man who is in love with money. We got to consider this morning partly a portrait of people who love pigs more than people. See in their uh, demonic influence, the elevation of things over image bearers of God. And this in many ways is poor Scrooge's plight. I trust you know the story. It horrified me as a child. I trust you know that as well. I believe I've mentioned it. You can ask my parents. It literally gave me nightmares for quite some time, making their lives quite difficult. <laughs> but you know how he is given the proper perspective. You know how he comes to his senses. He is shown his death. He's shown his end. And it is a dreadful end. It's a terrible end for him. It's one in which he is remembered as a miserable, miserly man where no one mourns his memory. And portrait of this sad and terrible end confronts him with his tombstone. Scripture interestingly uses a similar sobering technique for us when we consider the wealth of this world. Paul said it. You, you were born with nothing and you can take nothing out of this life. When the Lord discusses wealth in Luke 16, he uses the parable of the rich man and Lazarus and it's unfortunately death that was missing in the rich man's understanding of the purpose of wealth. And it was only tragically when he met the end that Ebenezer Scrooge met, that he saw clearly that the wealth of this world is temporary. And unless one uses it as such, one is going to be dominated by one will gain the world, but lose one's soul, to use the language of our Lord. We're considering the Eighth Commandment. Last week, we considered what the Eighth Commandment instructed us with reference to our obtaining of wealth. And we close by asking, what does God instruct us from his holy law concerning our use of wealth? The use of this outward estate, this earthly portion, which he has given everyone. We'll just make three observations this evening. The first is, his word instructs us that we are to use wealth for what is needful and what is comfortable. The second is that we are to use wealth wisely. And the third is that we are to use wealth generously. So first, God grants us the use of wealth for what is necessary and comfortable. In asking the question, what does the Eighth Commandment call us to concerning the use of wealth? The starting point is once more, the observation that everything that we have is given to us by God. Everything that you have, everything that you've ever had, 
all of your possessions, they are from the Lord. Not in some sort of abstract way, but in a very practical way. They are given to you by God. This frames our entire approach to the question of how do we use wealth? How do we use the things that we have? In fact, when we speak about what we have from God, we speak not of ownership. Not properly. We speak of stewardship, which is a strange notion to us, is it not? One theologian puts it this way, our possessions are not ours to use or waste as we please. They are a stewardship entrusted to us by God for which we will have to give him an account. We got to mention Lord of the Rings this morning. We are stewards of Gondor. We're stewards of Gondor. Now, such knowledge can create in us ugliness and resentment as it did King Denethor, or it can ennoble as it did young Faramir. To be a steward is not to be the rightful owner in an absolute sense. It's to be a guardian, a keeper, with certain rights necessary for the discharge of our responsibilities as stewards. Denethor is treated as if he were the king, and that's right and proper, so that he can discharge his duties as steward. But such a qualification as if often falls away in our own thinking, doesn't it? And we begin to think that we are the true and rightful owners of the things that we have, and we begin to begrudge the true king of his demands. We want to hear nothing of Aragorn, for we are the lords of Gondor. Paul assumes this approach when he writes in 1 Timothy 6, 17, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. God is the one who gives. He's looking at the rich here. Now, that's interesting because usually the rich can be pointed at and see these are the excellent ones. These are the ones who are cleverer, more industrious, harder working. Paul says, charge them not to be haughty. Remind them that it is God who has given them everything that they have. What they have is not to be boasted in. Why? Because what they have is a plainer indication of the riches of God's kindness to them than they are an indication of the excellencies of their persons. Did you track with that? So he says, don't boast. Don't be haughty. You don't see on display in your possessions your excellencies. You see on display in your possession God's excellencies. The richness of his kindness. That's striking, isn't it? Because usually we think about the things that we have as a true and accurate reflection of our abilities. It's proof that I've worked harder than everyone else. It's proof that I'm more capable than those who have less. Paul says it's not, not in an ultimate sense. 
For even the very strength that you have, even the abilities that you have, even the opportunities that you have, these did not come to you by any sort of absolute right. These are extensions of his kindness to you. One excels another in a portion of strength. Why? Because God gives different gifts. One excels another in a portion of ability. Why? Because God gives different gifts, beloved. Paul says, charge the rich not to be haughty. This is to say nothing with the sheer perplexity that starts to open to us when we consider the mystery of opportunity. I assure you, our great-great-grandfathers worked just as hard, if not harder, than we did, and yet we possess a wealth that far surpasses what they had. It is not an indication of any ability or excellency we have. It's a quirk of time, place, opportunity. And so he reasonably says, don't, don't boast in these things, beloved. Boast in God who richly provides you with everything. That frames how we approach this. So that if our estates are given to us from God and we are stewards, well then how does the commandment instruct us concerning our use of our outward estate? We can hear even in Paul's words that God gives richly. He doesn't begrudge giving us gifts. We considered that in Matthew's gospel when Jesus points to the birds and to the lilies. He says, God knows you have needs, beloved. He designed you to have needs, beloved. He made you with those needs, beloved. He doesn't begrudge supplying you those needs, beloved. So the first thing we say with reference to our use of wealth is that the Lord gives us these things to supply us with what we need. Food, clothing, shelter. Paul says, in fact, so basic is this principle that God's law forbids even muzzling the ox from keeping them from eating in the midst of their labor. It is a basic principle in God's abundantly fair economy that one derives what is necessary from what one labors in. Paul makes this even plainer when he says that those who do not work should not eat. Now again, the apostle isn't laying down an absolute principle there. He's encouraging the idle to labor there, those who would seize upon the end of all things as Scrooge was confronted with it and see, well, it all ends soon, so why bother doing anything? Paul's saying that's a mistaken conclusion. But what we hear in the Apostle's word is the assumption that it's our labor and the estates that God gives us thereby, which God is pleased to use to provide what is necessary for us. God calls us to understand that the fruit of our labors is his provision for our needs. Now mark that. That's easy to overlook, isn't it? It's so easy to skip over the fact that we pray regularly that God would give us this day our daily bread and then see the answer to that very prayer and the fact that we have bodies that can labor, 
strength to do work that supplies. This isn't the provision that we've made for our daily bread in the absolute sense, beloved. This is the provision that God has made for us for our daily bread. Mark, if that's not easy to overlook, the provision of strength, the soundness of mind, the opportunity to honest labor, the wages we receive, the means to secure our needs. Do you regularly give thanks for these things? Do you point to them and say, how good you are, God, to make this basic and consistent provision for me? Mark his faithfulness in it. Even in times where I've been beset with weakness and couldn't work for a while, he's brought me through and restored me to strength so that I can get back to work. There's a loveliness to be seen in the quiet and consistent provision that God makes for us in this way. We can also go on to say that it's not a paltry provision, beloved, is it? (laughs) It's not as if he's, we've mentioned Beauty and the Beast, that Stingy clock, dash of water, crust of bread, off to bed. (laughs) It's not a begrudging provision. It's not stale bread and a sip of water. It's meat and wine and oil. So not only does he allow us to supply our needs from the portion he grants us, beloved, he allows us no slight comfort from the portions he's granted us. Isn't that right? The soft beds we lay down in, the warm clothes, the heated homes through cold Minnesota winters, the rich food that fills our homes. Beloved, these are rich provisions. And Paul assumes that. He says he richly provides us with everything to enjoy. He richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Paul profiles here the abundance of God, the superfluous generosity of God, the needless excess of God. No, it's too many flavors, Lord. (laughs) It's too many colors. No, the sensations of warmth and rest and a cozy home, it's too rich. It's all from him, beloved. He richly provides us. Mark, if we can't see his infinite goodness flickered in this, that he extends this portion to us so freely, and he does not begrudge us the comfort and the pleasure that's taken from it. Heinrich Bollinger reminds us, God grants man all moderate pleasures wherewithal to delight him. Let no man make a scruple of conscience in the sweet and pleasant use of this earth's goods. Such a use is not sin, beloved. Mark, if we can't sometimes start to think that way. When it's received from the Lord in faith, it is to the praise of his abundant goodness that we mark 
His design in the richness of the wine, in the richness of the meat, in the warmth of the fire, in the beauty of the winter night, in the coziness of the family around the table, ensconced in safety, drinking in the beauty of that goodness. Beloved, it's a foretaste of the excellencies to come. The difference between that moment, those moments, and the eternal glory is that the one to come gathered around that table, taking up that cup, will be one unbroken day of joy. Mark if that isn't part of the difficulty of this life. The Christmas feast gives way to depressing February. The loveliness that sustains us through November and December gives way to a very long winter on the other side of that coziness. It's the transience of those things, but they're foretastes, beloved. They were never meant to satisfy. They were meant to orient our hearts to the God who has designed those things and gives those things in which we glimpse a flicker of the maker of heaven and earth's glory, which he will expose us to in fullness of unbroken praise when Christ returns for us and we all sit down to feast. Beloved, he does not begrudge you the comfort that you derive, the pleasure that you derive from the portions that he has granted you. He is far more generous than you or I could ever imagine, beloved. Mark the excellencies of our God and the simple fact that he extends to us these comforts and pleasures to be tasted of in this life, but to be enjoyed in fall when the king returns. And we feast in Gondor. But if we do acknowledge plain testimony of what Paul says there in 1 Timothy 6, that he richly provides us with everything to enjoy, to be received with thanksgiving. We also must mark that Scripture calls us to a wise provision, a wise stewardship of the provision that he's given us. So if we acknowledge that God provides for our needs and even comforts and pleasures from our earthly estates, we also have to wrestle with what it means to potentially waste the goods that he's given us. And the mistake that lies in this direction is mistaking the feast for the best thing and thus becoming in love with the feasting. So we try to design the banquet here. We try to engineer the banquet here by a relentless pursuit of that thing. Now, Proverbs is full of warnings of this kind, which is, Worth hearing. Proverbs 21:17. Whoever loves pleasure will be a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not be rich. Proverbs 23, 19 through 21. Hear, my son, and be wise. Direct your heart in the way. Be not among those who drink too much wine or among the gluttonous eaters of meat. For the drunkard will come to poverty and slumber will clothe them with rags. Enjoyment is not forbidden. Access is forbidden. 
You can hear the old theologian speak about prodigality. Prodigality. And that's what they meant. Prodigality is a form of abuse where enjoyment is a lawful and even required use of our earthly estates. So again, Heinrich Bullinger instructs us, we may not abuse the wealth that the Lord has lent us in pride and luxury as many do, who lash out in all sumptuous building, strange clothing, excessive drinking, and over-dainty banqueting. You just can't talk like that anymore. <laughs> Bullinger's writing in the 16th century. And that's really pressed home in that parable that we've already mentioned of the rich man and Lazarus. It's not the lawful enjoyment of wealth there that the Lord indicts. It's the excess that the Lord indicts there. We're introduced in Luke 16:1 to a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. You can even feel the excess. Now, this isn't Scrooge's miserliness, strictly speaking. This is the glutton and the, the wine-bibber of Proverbs. But not only is this excess, and is this a sinful excess, it's juxtaposed, it's contrasts with Lazarus' helpless plight and the rich man's neglect of doing real good with his wealth. As the opportunity sat, upon his doorstep. And it highlights for us the danger that's perennially threatening us as those who live in a rather affluent culture. It's hard to grapple with, but I think it's necessary to grapple with what does it mean that we're called not to waste the portion God has given us? I don't have any particular answers, but I know Scripture commends that question commends it at all sorts of levels, high and low. But the one thing we can highlight is that it's not avoiding waste simply for the purpose of having more. Waste isn't shunned out of a miserly disposition. Waste is avoided so that we can be positioned to use it rightly. Like we said, waste access is a form of abuse, and it's avoided, it's avoided not for a different form of abuse, miserliness or greed, having for having's sake, Scrooge's plight, but rather to position well to use well that which God has given us. And he's already hinted in that very parable what a, a good use of wealth would have been, which we'll come to in a moment. Now our ultimate defense against such a perversity, we've already hinted at. It's only to be found in the continual refreshment of the only pleasure that can satisfy. You get this image of seeking satisfaction in these pleasures, in this display of wealth. And the truth is, and perhaps you've experienced it, there is no satisfaction to be found that road, down that road. All feasts end. Every bottle of wine has a bottom. Clothes wear out. Every mansion decays. 
You are an everlasting soul. The only one in whom there is true satisfaction is the one of whom we've already tasted that indeed he is good. This is how we continually stay oriented to the truth that satisfaction can't be found with another feast. If those things are foretastes of God's goodness to come and they're received in such a way that cultivates in our heart a greater longing for the day when we will see him face to face and be satisfied, be known as we are known. Come on. We will know as we are known on that day. Come on. That's great. If that's what the pleasures of this life orient to, that's proper use, beloved. But if we fixate on that and pursue the cup, the table, we find not only does it not satisfy, but a course of misery opening up in its wake. So we're invited to ask, and I would encourage you to ask, is Christians in a time of abundance, what does it mean to waste? Is there anywhere that we can see waste? Is it possible to arrange things such that we waste less? Seek the Lord in prayer on that thing. Seek his wisdom, which he gives freely on that issue. Is it fair that that's something we don't ask very often? Have you ever asked that? Scripture commends it. I don't think there's an easy answer there, but I, I think you see God's promise to meet you there as you wrestle with it and supply with wisdom. But Mark, we don't waste so that we can just have more. We waste so that we can give, which is the last consideration. We're called to lend and to give generously. Paul writes this plainly in 1 Timothy 16, same passage, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. A nightmare reoriented Scrooge. A nightmare reoriented Scrooge. The gospel reorients us, beloved. The riches which have passed to us freely in the Lord Jesus Christ belonging to the true and living God who owned the cattle on a thousand hills as his children whom he begrudges no good thing reorients us. The future of blessing with him unbroken forever in the presence of Christ reorients us, beloved. No more, nowhere more clearly are the gospel foundations of our ethic on display than in the call to be generous. <laughs> Mark how plainly that emerges from the way God has dealt with us, beloved. 
He's dealt with us in boundless grace, taking us, though we were enemies, and making us his children, heirs, beloved, heirs. We don't bring that facet of the truth of adoption out nearly enough. The truth of our adoption is that we are heirs of the Father, beloved, lawful heirs of the maker of heaven and earth, beloved. Such has been his dealing with you. So this rich provision, this future riches drives us now to what? Paul says, look, do good now. (laughs) You've got a lot of reason to do some good. (laughs) You've got all the reason in the world to go out and do some good. And one of the ways that we do good, one of the astonishing ways that we can do good is by using temporal wealth to somehow facilitate eternal blessing. Somebody make sense of that for me. That's what he's saying here. Did you hear him? That's what he said. He says, look, the the, the paltry stuff that you have that's not going with you, use it to store up treasure that is going to remain forever. That is a very strange conversion. (laughs) There's the philosopher's stone. (laughs) The astonishing thing, I've said this before, isn't that he calls us to do good with temporal wealth. The astonishing thing is that we can do true good with temporal wealth, beloved. And this is opened up for us as those who have received eternal good. There's boundless generosity which is cultivated as we reflect upon the generosity which has been extended unto us in the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit, Beloved, this is to characterize our lives here. We are to be the community of the generous ones. As those who are quick to deal with others, not according to what we think they deserve, but according to what they need in mercy, in kindness, in a quickness to give. The Lord gives us these Estates, beloved, for the needs that we have, for a comfort which reminds us that our eternal pleasure is secure to be with the Father as he teaches us to seek him in wisdom and he gives us an opportunity to do good to those who are in need, whether in the church, in our family, or in our neighborhoods, wherever the Lord has us, Father. May we be characterized by this more and more as the day of Christ draws near. Join me in prayer. Father, create in us thankful hearts as you open our eyes more and more to the riches of your grace and mercy extended unto us, Lord. Teach us, Father, to hold rightly the things of this world that you've given us to use them well in wisdom in generosity uh, that we might bear true testimony lord to this world that indeed our hope is not 
to be found in the things of this world or in the circumstances of this world, but is firmly anchored beyond the veil in the Lord Jesus Christ. May we live in the light of these things, Lord, and thus glorify you in all that we do and think and say. For we ask in Christ's name, amen.